Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, with a message titled, The Betrayer. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, 17 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The Psalms, if you've ever read them, well, they're a series of poems, they're songs of praise. They stress the relationship between the man that's writing and God. A great many Psalms are Psalms of sorrow and of suffering. And furthermore, a great bit of that suffering has to do with enemies. Indeed, a great many of Psalms contain the words, against me, against me. And so Psalm 3, verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising up against me. Psalm 27, verse 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me. They breathe out violence. Psalm 35, 15. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. You know, those kinds of psalms are psalms of complaint. They seek protection from God, from, you know, men who are enemies rising up against me. But at least in my estimation, all of those against me psalms, none is more painful than the complaint that we find in Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. See, nothing's more painful than a friend who rises up against a friend. You know, the great preacher and Christian leader Spurgeon suffered terribly when his own brother rose up against him. He's not alone. Many a Christian leader has deep wounds because of a close friend who became an enemy. I recently was reading an interview, and in the interview, it's now some years ago, but I read it recently, and in it, a very famous and godly and influential pastor was speaking. He said, and I quote, the most difficult thing that ever happens to me, whether it's when I'm young or old, is disloyalty at the level of leadership. Not because I deserve loyalty, he says, but because disloyalty is so destructive. The hardest thing you'll ever deal with is false accusation. People who say things about you that aren't true and undermine people's trust and confidence. And this goes on, in my case, he said, all the time. Now, I let you know that I can say the same thing. I bear wounds, not from enemies and not from people who hardly know me and occasionally fire shots in my direction. I bear the wounds of men who claim to be friends and then falsely accuse me, not even wishing to hear from me, but only to do harm. See, the fact is, no Christian leader is exempt from betrayal. Indeed, Jesus himself was not. We're going to read about that. And David's words that a close friend in whom he trusted had betrayed him are words that can be repeated over and over again. Brian Chappell, well-known, effective, hugely influential Christian leader, a man known for his integrity and the mark he has left for the glory of Christ recently in his book entitled Grace at Work, Redeeming the Grind and Glory of Your Job, wrote these words. He said, I've led Christian organizations most of my adult life. In those settings, I've been stolen from, lied to, falsely accused, threatened, forced out of organizations and off boards, betrayed by those I trusted, abandoned by friends, blamed for the misdeeds of the ones doing the blaming, and the list goes on and on. 
And then he went on to say, I cannot think of a single instance in which the ones doing such evil were not professing Christians. And then he added that many would conclude that that must mean in their eyes that he must be a terrible leader. So is Christian leadership really like that? Well, I'll come back to that. But today, as we carry on in the study of Matthew's portrayal of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we come to the subject of betrayal to Judas. So let's begin our study. Matthew 26, 17 to 19. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. You know, at first, our account begins as we would have expected. Of course, we know that there's a very dark cloud that looms over this Passover celebration, for Matthew has already made it quite plain that Jesus expects to be crucified shortly after eating this Passover. And so there's a theme of joy at eating together at such a sacred meal and also of sorrow that not long after this meal will end, the horrible suffering of Jesus will begin. Matthew begins with the words that it was the first day of unleavened bread, and that would be a Thursday. And toward mid-afternoon on that day, lambs, one lamb per household, would be brought to the temple courts where the priests would have sacrificed them. The blood would have been taken from the sacrificed lamb. It would be collected in a basin. It would be passed along a line of priests and then thrown against the foot of the altar where it would drain out down into the Kidron Valley below. Josephus tells us that the Kidron Valley literally ran red with blood during Passover. But on this day, no yeast was to be eaten or left in the home of any faithful Jew. Jews would ceremonially look through their homes, making sure to remove any yeast from it. And hence, the day was called the day of unleavened bread. But the Passover meal, the eating of the lamb that had been sacrificed, well, that wouldn't take place until the sun went down. And in the Jewish day of reckoning, sundown signaled the beginning of a new day, Friday. But Friday hadn't arrived yet, and although several of the disciples would have been discharged to sacrifice the lamb for their group, they still weren't told where they would eat it. Steps needed to be taken to find a room or a place for that ceremonial meal. Matthew's description of it is quite short. Mark's description is a bit longer, filling in some of the details, but Matthew, as we're going to see, wants to draw our attention to the betrayal that happened at the meal. But we need to slow down before we get to the betrayal and consider the events. Passover was actually a one-day feast, but the one-day feast was a part of another celebration, and that other celebration was an eight-day-long festival of unleavened bread, in which Israel celebrated not just God's deliverance from bondage, but the speed at which that deliverance came. But now it's Thursday, and still disciples don't know where they will eat the Passover meal to commence after sundown. And it was an involved meal in which Jesus was expected to lead. Questions were to be asked about the meaning of the meal. Four cups of wine would be drunk. They would eat bitter herbs, sing songs of blessing, all done according to the scripture and Jewish tradition. It was an involved meal. Matthew says it was the first day of unleavened bread, and as Josephus, the historian, helps us, this day became thought of as the Thursday before the meal was eaten in the evening. Where will we eat the Passover, the disciples ask, and somewhere they need to find a large room to accommodate all 13 of them. 
And since the city was already packed with pilgrims, one can understand the disciples' concern over this matter. And in response, Jesus directs them to a certain man. Well, at any rate, we don't know who he was. Had Jesus privately made arrangements beforehand so that he directs disciples to them? Well, that's possible. But Jesus could have had divine knowledge of that person. At any rate, there were words that they were to speak to this man. How do they know which man? Well, Mark fills in some of the details. They're to go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet them. They're to follow him and when he enters into a house, they're to follow him there and ask where the room was where Jesus and the twelve could eat the Passover. But Matthew tells us they were to add further words. The teacher says, my time is at hand. Now that, I think, is an ambiguous phrase. What did it mean? Did the disciple think that he meant that the time of the celebration of Passover was at hand? And did that certain man think that as well? Again, we're not sure. But Jesus clearly meant that the time of his crucifixion was at hand. And this Passover would afford to him the last instructions he would have to give to his disciples before he went to his death. You know, a great many Bible readers are surprised, given that Jesus is the Son of God and fully equal with the Father that he would at all times submit himself to the timeline of the Father. But on this matter, Jesus' life gives us insight as to how important this matter is. It was later that John reminds us of Jesus' mode of operation. John 5.19 accurately records Jesus saying, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And so when Jesus says that his time is at hand, he means that the Father has informed him that he's going to be crucified shortly. At all times, Jesus provides for us a wonderful example, always obedient to the Father's direction to the point of death. And then the disciples go to this certain man and find that the room is reserved for them. Matthew provides us with no details other than they prepared the Passover in that room. That would include setting the table and the food that would need to be prepared. But Matthew has already informed us that one of the 12 would be involved in treachery. Treachery at the Passover meal. Would you like to receive all of the latest Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, Bible teaching and encouragement resources directly to your inbox every Monday to Friday? Then be sure to sign up for the free daily audio mail. Every day you'll receive an email containing links to all the daily Bible teaching programs, newest blogs, and all the audio and video messages from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt. So to subscribe for audio mail, visit backtothebible.ca and at the bottom of the page, you'll find a simple sign-up form. Now all your favorite resources will be sent to you every weekday. Or if you prefer, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 and we'll make sure you receive the next Back to the Bible Canada audio mail. sun's gone down. Jesus and the twelve are sitting at the table. Matthew 26, verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. You know, it's common for many of us to imagine a table with chairs looking something like, you know, the very famous painting that we've all seen by Leonardo da Vinci, his portrait of the Last Supper. 
But this is not what it looked like at all. People didn't sit on chairs in those days. They reclined. Matthew has just told us that. The table would have been a low one. Jesus and his disciples would sit on cushions on the ground, their legs usually behind them. They would recline, sometimes even lying on their sides. And that's why when John describes that scene, he tells us where he was. He says he was leaning back against Jesus while they spoke. So that's the scene we should have from the beginning. But let's keep on reading. Verses 21 to 25. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it has been written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, before we move to the actual events described here, I feel it necessary to answer an important question. Was Judas involved when Jesus handed out the third cup and said, This bread is my body and this cup is my blood? And I make mention of this because I know of some Bible teachers that try to make a great deal on that point. They say that since Jesus offered the Lord's Supper to Judas, we're right to offer it to non-Christians today. And I'm going to address that matter in greater detail tomorrow, but I think it's necessary to address this question now. According to Matthew's account, first Judas leaves and then they eat the Lord's Supper. But we also notice that on many occasions, Matthew doesn't always put things in strict chronological order. But there are other hints about the timing of these events. If we go to Mark, Mark's wording is very much like Matthew's wording, and he tells of the actual celebration of the Lord's Supper after Judas has left the room. But many others point out that Luke seems to see things differently. Luke 22 verse 20 has Jesus saying words around the cup while it would appear that Judas is in the room. However, Luke condenses or abbreviates the account to show how incongruent it is to have Judas there at all. So it may be that Luke is topical here and Matthew and Mark are chronological, but we can't be absolutely sure. And I, for one, think it's most likely that Judas is out of the room by the time that Jesus speaks about his body and blood. Now, having said that, let me say that in no way, even if Judas was in the room, should we take that as an indication that today we ought to make the Lord's table available to those who don't know Christ. You know, Paul speaks against that notion. So at any rate, let's get back to Matthew's account. The 11 know nothing of the fact that Judas has already made a secret deal to betray Jesus. And remember, the religious leaders are looking to get their hands on Jesus when he's somewhere alone and away from the crowd of followers. They need Judas to signal them when it's safe to arrest Jesus without a commotion. He is the betrayer. But as far as Judas knows, he's the only one in the room that knows what he has planned. But then it must have shocked him. Jesus speaks to this very issue. I don't know what the discussion had been. No doubt Jesus is addressing them all when he says, one of you will betray me. So Mark, when he tells of this story, immediately alludes to Psalm 41 verse 9. You know, the psalm that I've already mentioned at the beginning of, you know, today's message. And Matthew, for his part, simply lets the events be told while making no comment. Jesus says, I know that one of you will betray me. 
And then Matthew says there's a reaction in the room. And that reaction, curiously, is sorrow. Yeah, they've often misunderstood Jesus. And at times, you know, as when, you know, Peter rebuked Jesus for even speaking about his crucifixion, the disciples had become testy towards Jesus at times. But never had there been a word about betrayal. And instead of portraying them as shocked, which they truly would have been, Matthew wants us to focus on another emotion. And that emotion is sorrow. See, at some point, when the shock wore off, they must have embraced that it was true. But what do we make of the questioning? Why do they all ask, is it I? And the answer has to be that no person knows himself or herself well enough to know whether the propensity for evil that we all have within us should so break out in us that we become betrayers. Think of it for a moment. We've all been critical of others, and we've done worse. Instead of going to the person we feel critical of, we go to others and we engage in slander. It's cruel, for the person we slander is not there to defend himself or herself. And when we engage others who might agree the slander only builds, can we name this activity? Yeah, we can. It's called evil. Matthew 18, we are commanded that if we have ought against someone, we need to go to them and not to someone else, to them. But although we know this, we break the command of Jesus and we speak badly of others. Our tongues, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, become open graves, the tool whereby we seek to bury others. Had the 12 been critical of Jesus in the past? Well, I think they must have been. For they're all unsure of themselves at this moment. Could I go beyond my critical spirit to finally being done with Jesus and betraying him? They didn't know themselves well enough, but they knew that Jesus knew them quite well. See, I imagine that when Matthew, remember he's there, he says that they were sorrowful. I imagine some actually began to weep. The gravity of the matter began to settle in on them. So what do we make of Jesus' response? Verse 23. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Well, they'd all done that. I mean, why doesn't Jesus answer them directly? Why put the matter that way? Why let the accusation simply hang there, leaving each man uncertain as to whom Jesus is identifying? See, I think part of the answer is that Jesus demands that we all examine ourselves. So let me speak personally here as a longtime pastor. I have seen a great many people apostatize in my lifetime. I remember one man denying Christ because he wanted to leave his wife and run off with another woman. I remember one man deny Christ because he wanted a freer sexual lifestyle. And I've also seen others do so because they were disappointed in Jesus. They simply wandered away. You know, I've asked myself, is such a response possible in me? See, I've asked the Lord, Lord, don't let me outlive my love for you. Let me die before that should happen. But there's another reason Jesus responds as he does. The man that betrays him is the man, as David has said, that shares fellowship with him. Years ago, I had a dear friend who served Christ in an oppressive country. He told me he was shocked when he found out that one of his closest friends and ministry partners, a man he'd prayed with often, had for all those years been a spy of the government that was persecuting them. He said he was deeply shaken. He said, I don't think I've ever recovered from that. And here in Judas, it's one of the 12, one of those who had been with Jesus for three years, had been through everything with him, 
one of those who should have taken his place as an apostle representing Jesus to the world after Jesus was gone, one who had put his hand and dipped it into the dish and eaten with him and shared fellowship. You know, John tells us that after Jesus said that, he dipped a morsel of bread into the dish and then gave it directly to Judas. Matthew doesn't mention that, for he doesn't want us to take our eyes off of the closeness of this betrayal. And then Jesus adds, I'm going to go as it is written of me. And he's probably referring to Isaiah chapters 42 to 53. Indeed, later on that same night, as John would describe it for us, Jesus called Judas the one destined to destruction. That is to say, the matter is foreordained by God, but even so, Judas is morally culpable for everything that he does. Jesus said it would have been better for him never to have been born. I imagine a stunned silence is on the room. Judas knows he's been discovered, and he asks, is it I? And Jesus says, you have said so. Matthew doesn't mention that Judas went out into the night, but we know that satanic darkness flooded his soul. A betrayer is among them. You know, I end this by making an appeal to all my listeners. If you're a betrayer, if you brought harm to one of God's servants, what is it that you must do? You can spend the rest of your life justifying yourself, many do, or you can take ownership of what you've done. You see, don't be Judas. Don't carry on with your deal with the devil. I know that Judas' sin is far darker because he has betrayed Jesus, but you make the same determination. I will never betray a servant of Jesus. Don't ever do it. Thanks so much, John. You know, during our text, uh, we witnessed the ultimate betrayal of Judas towards Jesus. Seems to me there's so much to learn from this, but one lesson might be, in general, how we treat or mistreat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, Judas betrayed Jesus because he wanted something and he could not get what he wanted unless he betrayed him. And this happens as well among even Christians. A betrayal is done on a regular basis. It's uh, shocking and it's appalling. And uh, we need to renounce it as a great evil. Now, when we find ourselves wanting to betray someone, let's remember we don't want to be in Judas' camp. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here in Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315 
or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.